favorite things to do, and I know it's also one of yours, is to attend a sporting event in which one of our teams is playing, uh, and certainly when our team wins. Whether it is the Cincinnati Reds, who are actually good, uh, or college football, which is right around the corner, game day atmosphere is just awesome. It's fun. The food, the tailgating, the friends, all of it, it's meant to be fun, and it typically is. Something which is included in all game day atmospheres is that the home team has a song, either a fight song or something traditional uh, that matches the team or the city. Uh, The Boston Red Sox fans sing Neil Diamond's Sweet Caroline in the eighth inning of every game. Why do they sing that song? Who knows? I googled it. I still didn't get a good answer. It's just kind of tradition. It's what they do, but it's fun and they're happy. The Cincinnati Bengals have welcome to the jungle at every game. Why on earth do the Bengals sing that? Again, who knows, but it's happy. We sing, of course, my old Kentucky home at the conclusion of games here in Lexington. Here's the point. The singing of these songs accompanies a very happy and fun occasion, doesn't it? You wouldn't sing otherwise. You don't go to a sports venue for unhappy reasons, hopefully. But there's enjoyment. There's celebration. And then there's singing. When a group of people are gathered together in celebration, what will always happen? There will be a spirit of song. It's true not just for sporting events, but it's true for families. It's true for clubs. And, of course, it's true for churches. Here's a fact for this morning. Happy people sing. Happy people sing. In some way, God made it so. As people who are made in his image, God is the one who created singing, and he leads us to sing. So this morning, we are going to see a song. Uh, That's what the Psalms are, and this song is about singing. Primarily, it's the motivation why we would sing to our God. People sing because of what the Lord has done. So keep your Bibles open to Psalm 47 as we go through this. Uh, This psalm is considered a psalm of praise, categorically, and we'll explore the reasons for the writer and his desire for us to see why God is worthy of our praise. The historical occasion here, scholars believe, was most likely the moment when Israel had a military defeat of their great nemesis, the Philistines. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, Scripture records that the Ark of the Covenant, this ancient symbol which traveled with God's people, had been captured by the Philistines. But here, in another defeat, the Israelites actually took the Ark Back. It had been recaptured. So the picture that is here before us at Psalm 47 is the scene of a military victory where everyone is celebrating because of what they see, this physical sign of God's victory. It's a special, significant meaning because it was victorious and the grand prize of the battle being revealed to the army of God. And as the ark would have been brought before the people for all to see, The choir master gave these words in response to the faithfulness of God. And then he explained in the content of this song why to sing. But what you need to see this morning, it was time for a celebration. It was time for a feast. 
It was time to burst forth with loud shouts of adoration and to give praise to the one who was faithful. It was time to strike up the band and celebrate with all of our heart and song because of who God is and what he had done. So that was the occasion then. The question for us today is what does Psalm 47 mean for us now? As you know, uh, we have been in a series of studying the Psalms this summer and seeking out places of joy in which we find our joy in the Lord. I want us to see this morning the reasons why we are to be people who sing, why we are to be people who celebrate who the Lord is, true, heartfelt, spirit-led people who desire to give praise to our God. Do you know why? God is worthy of your praise this morning. Do you know what he has done that would garner your praise? Why is he worthy of not gathering simply to hear somebody like me talk about him? But why is he worthy for us with our heart to praise him? That's the message for today. That when we embrace the victory which is ours in Christ, singing to our Lord will naturally follow So last week, I aimed to convince you because of the greatness of God's kingdom, it was good for us to sleep. Today, I aim to convince you that because of the greatness of Jesus' kingdom, we should sing. Okay, so if you're a note taker, there's not really a clear outline from the text, but rather just several repeated themes. So understanding that happy people sing from verse 1, God commands us to sing. I want to highlight three reasons why. We are to sing, while we are to be people of song, while we are singing people. I'm going to take these from verses 2 through 4, each a separate point, in hopes that the Lord will stir in us a heart of song. So please see this morning, first, our victory in his kingdom, secondly, our victory in his word, and then thirdly, our victory in life. It's a victory in kingdom and word and in life. And truly, I have prayed this week and I have prayed this morning that the Lord would stir our hearts, that we would be people of song. All right, first, notice we sing because of our place in his kingdom. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 includes much of the theological distinctives that we hold here in our church, in our quote-unquote reform tradition. This is so rich and it's worthy of its own sermon series, but we're just going to give it one point this morning. A.W. Tozer famously wrote years ago in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, that, quote, what comes into your mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think who God is and what he is about, that is the most important thing about us. So it begs a question for you this morning, what do you think of God? What is God to you? Who do you think he is? Does he matter at all to you this morning? In our system of belief, I think the dominant metaphor of God as revealed in Scripture is this. God is a king. That's the image. That's what we see throughout the psalm here. He's royal. He rules. He has a territory. He has a reign. He is a king, but more than that, he is the king. Now, the problem, of course, for Americans is that we don't exactly have the greatest history of recognizing monarchs and their authority over us. We have a little problem with that historically. But biblically, we need to really embrace the idea of being ruled by a king. 
For us to experience joy in our lives, we must embrace that we are citizens of a kingdom. We live inside of a home ruled by a king who is great. Look back, we see that in this context here that Yahweh, the Lord, he is the king. And thus he has laws which he created and implemented with his purposes in mind. And he rules us with them. His reign extends to every section of the earth. There is no person nor any place which is not subject to him and his rule and his reign. That's what his kingdom is. But note there's a problem here. In verse 2, this great king of ours is to, quote, to be feared. Other translations, I think, get this more closely correct. And it says that the most high is terrible, terrible. What does this mean? How are we to understand a God which is to be feared? Why would we be here this morning in celebration? And again, church, I really think in many ways, this is the cornerstone of all that we believe is true. And that is this, our king, your king, the king is a holy king and we are not. When we say that he is holy, that means we are not his equal. God is not one of us. We are made in his image. Therefore, we are like him, but we are not equal to him. He is the creator of the kingdom. We are simply citizens inside of the kingdom. We live in his world, but he's the owner of it. Whenever we have an encounter in scripture where God reveals himself The dominant issue, whenever a person sees God in Scripture, what happens in the holiness of God is that his perfection is so great, no one can live inside of his presence. In Exodus 33, Moses asked if he could see God's glory. And you remember the answer that God gave to Moses? His response is, you can't see me and then live. You see, we're not his equals. He is holy. We are not. We're his citizens. So how do we live as citizens when his kingdom extends everywhere, but yet we can't come into his presence and survive? Again, I hope the message of the psalm and the writer's intent is sinking into your heart even as I say these words. You see, apart from God's willingness, we would have no enjoyable relationship with him at all. We would only be his enemy. But yet in his greatness, in the extension of his kingdom, our expectation is that we are now called to sing. Isn't that the point of the psalm? Isn't that what's taking place? The God who is to be feared is commanding us to sing to him, to shout praise to him, to clap our hands, to have joyful songs in our heart. You see what's happened? You see the miracle before you? In God's holiness, he chooses to let us near. You see, what Jesus accomplished for us does not in any way change the holiness of God, but rather allows us the privilege of being now his treasured possessions inside of his kingdom. If you have your Bibles still open, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. And to see in the New Testament what our citizenship inside of this kingdom looks like now. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And notice the miracle that has occurred. 
Because of Christ, here's what's true of us today. But you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have mercy. What's happened? We're now part of this kingdom. We now belong to him. You see, whenever we look at this verse 2 and we see the greatness of God's kingdom and we see the reality that God's kingdom extends all over the world, and then you combine that with which Kyle just read from Revelation 7-9 and that God inside of his kingdom exists people from every tongue, every tribe, every people group, whenever we hear those words, what typically comes to our mind is something related to our, our missions ministry, and that is God's mission exists for all peoples in all places. And that is absolutely right. TCPC partners with ministers and churches all around the world. In two weeks, Will will be in Togo, Africa, as being part of what we believe is true of all over the kingdom. But for this morning, I want you to think about that reality a little bit differently. Yes, God is sovereign. He is king over all of the universe. But do you know technically what that means? Do you recognize this? The victory which is ours in Christ means that his kingdom came all the way to us. To us. We are the nations. We are the Gentiles. We were the enemies. God has brought us in all the way to little Lexington, Kentucky, to strange people like you and me. We're now inside of this kingdom. God's promises came all the way here. I read the Tozer quote to you that what comes to your mind about God is the most important thing about you. C.S. Lewis came along and kind of corrected that statement where he said this, it doesn't really matter what you think about God. What matters is what God thinks about you. And what God says about you in Christ is that you exist inside of his kingdom and you are his treasured possession. You see, we sing this morning because this message came all the way to us. We sing this morning because we've been converted. We've been discipled. We've been made members of the kingdom. Do you see the miracle before you? We belong. First, we sing because of the kingdom and the vast nature of it, which includes us. But secondly, look at verse 3. We sing because of the victory in his words. And I'll be real honest with you this morning. Verse 3 confused me all week. (laughs) There's so much in this seemingly simple verse that there's a lot here. It appears the writer is simply referring to this military victory where the Ark of the Covenant was captured, recaptured and brought back. And that is true. As if that were not great enough, and it absolutely is part of what's going on, there's more than just that. There are issues with the translation of this word, subdue subdue. What's going on here? The first issue is that there are various translations that that translate this verb to be in the past tense, like we read with the ESV, as in subdued in the past. But there are very reliable translations that give it a future tense, as in God will subdue. So which is it? The second issue that I find challenging is what does the word subdue actually mean? 
Typically, we think of subdue, subdue as being conquered. But the word here being used is simply to speak, to say. And actually, not just to speak or to say, but to woo with the words. So here's what's actually going on. The more complete thought is this. To subdue is to understand that God is at work in the past, he's at work in the present, and he's at work in the future by using his words to woo us into the kingdom and to believe that which is true of us. See, God's kingdom is not that we have been taken slaves and turned into something less important. Matthew Henry says about this verse, as we are not captured by Christ for slaughter, but we're captured by Christ for our preservation. That's what he's done. He speaks to us and our lives are changed. He speaks and our lives are subdued. He speaks about our past. He speaks to our current life. He speaks to our future and he uses his words. By his words, we are formed. By his words, we are changed. By his spoken words, we are made new. One of my favorite stories from church history is the conversion of the great church father, Augustine. Some of you know the story, but Augustine lived in the midst of total rebellion against God, total addiction. He gave his life to the world and all that that meant, and he was wrestling with the Lord. Everything changed when he was in a garden one day, and a child gave him words to read, and those words came from Romans 13, and it said this, let us walk properly as in the daytime. And here's what Augustine said as he read those words, quote, I wanted to read no further, nor did I need to, for instantly, as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty, and all gloom of doubt passed away. What happened to Augustine is that God's word affected his heart. What is our victory this morning? Is it not the wooing of the words of God to us? He sets our life aright by speaking to us. Our victory in the past, our justification is that his word declares our sin is gone. Our victory today and our sanctification is that God is conforming us. Our victory in the future, our glorification is that we will be with him in our life being subdued. It is God's word at work, even to the point that someday we will reign over the nations with him, but we will do so by his word. So I ask you this morning, are you listening? Are you listening to his word? Are you seeking his voice? We have his word given to us. His word is here. But do you want him? Do you want his truth? Do you want to be like him? I assure you, he will be faithful as you seek him. And then we can joyfully sing because what is true. Uh, we sing because of his kingdom. We sing because of his word. But then lastly, we sing because our life is in his hands. Look at verse 4. Notice this victory which is ours in our life. Verse 4 is not hard to understand like verse 3, 
But it's only by God's grace that you want it to be true. The emphasis here is simply this, that the king of the world, the sovereign king, that his reign extends everywhere, that king, our king, he is the one who is responsible for our future. God himself is the one who does the choosing in the inheritance in which we receive. The Lord is the one who provides for the citizens of the kingdom. And we, the people, are the recipients. The question is, of course, do you want what he provides? Or do you want to create your own future? That really is our ongoing question, is it not? Do you want what the Lord has for you? Or do you want to create something else entirely? Theologians often differentiate between what is called common grace and special grace. Common grace is that gift which God gives to the world that allows the world to function at all. 24 hours in a day, the seasons, etc. But special grace is that which he provides only to his family members. For those who live by faith in him. Those who love him. Those who desire to follow him. Those who recognize him. By choosing our inheritance, what he is saying to you this morning is, in this particular grace that he has for you, he will not forget you, but he will provide for you. Your full inheritance is found in him. This promise of a land to a particular group of people connected to verse 9 are the children of Abraham. And who are these people? Of course, it's you and me. It's all those throughout this kingdom who look to Christ who is the true and greatest child of Abraham. Church, our ultimate inheritance, of course, is in heaven with him, and he is bringing it to us. But as we live today, he has our days numbered. He knows our name. He cares for us. Here's the application for you this morning, and I find it to be the application of every single psalm that we're going through this summer. And that is that joy and confidence go together. It's not confidence in yourself, but it is confidence that the God who is on his throne knows what he is doing. So what that means for you this morning is that you can trust him for your life. You can trust him for your future. You can trust him for the uncertainty that exists in your life because he is the sovereign one. We can sing because he is in charge. If you're in a place of hurt this morning, you can sing. Because you're hopeful in him. If you're in a place of need this morning, you can sing to him because he will provide ultimately what you need. If you're in a place of abundance this morning, you can sing in gratitude toward him. Wherever you are, God is the one who is on his throne. He is the one at work in all of us today, preparing us for an eternity with him. That is what this is about. Our ultimate inheritance is found in him. We belong to him. In the last book of the Harry Potter series, when Voldemort thought he had won the ultimate victory, he looks out over his subjects at Hogwarts Castle and he thinks to himself that he is the Lord, that he has defeated death, and that he is ultimately the one that everyone will bow to. And he looks out to the students and to the family and all of those who had gathered to fight against him. And he says to them something like this. Your life is found in me. Your future is found in me. You come to me 
with your hopes. And that's what a Lord would say, and that's what a Lord would do. Except for, of course, his kingdom immediately failed. Just like all lords that want to be the sovereign ones who are not. We have a king, and he is the most high king. So what does Jesus say about you this morning? As we come near the end of the sermon, as we prepare to come to the table, let me simply remind you of one of our favorite passages here at our church that we must consider this morning. Zephaniah 3.17. Hear these words of how God thinks of you this morning. Our true Lord. He says this. The Lord your God is with you. A mighty warrior who saves He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Do you know what your heavenly father thinks of you this morning? When he looks at you in Christ, he is so happy he sings in you. Jesus, our mighty king, delights in you so much he sings over you. Yes, you. That's what the gospel says. Happy people sing. And your heavenly father this morning sings over you. Your heavenly father is happy as he celebrates that you are in his family, that you are in his son. Church, this is our life. This is our hope that the gospel says that we rejoice because of what he has done. As a child growing up in church, there was one hymn I feel like we sang more than any other hymn. I remember the hymn number. It was hymn 75 in our old hymnal. The hymn was called Victory in Jesus. Some of you remember this. Stephen led us in this song a month or two ago. I have chosen not to sing that for you this morning. You're welcome. But let me close with these words from the second stanza. Here's what... Our victory in Jesus sounds like. I heard about his healing, of his cleansing power revealing, how he made the lame to walk again and he caused the blind to see. And then I cried, dear Jesus, come and heal my broken spirit. And somehow Jesus came and brought to me the victory. Is this not our hope? Is this not our song? We sing because the Lord loves us. We sing because Jesus is our King. Let me pray, and then I will transition us to the Lord's Prayer, and then we will come and feast around his table this morning. Father, we thank you this morning that you are worthy of our song. Lord, we thank you that what is true of you has been true for all of eternity. And that we have all of eternity going forward to give praise to you. And Father, I pray that by your grace, by your kindness to us this morning, as as we come to take of uh, these elements before us, that you would remind us afresh of your goodness. That you would remind us afresh of your power, that you save us, and that your victory is ours. And now we pray, O God, as you have taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.